Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. For the sake of simplicity and marketing, investing is often put into two broad categories, growth and value. These boxes are helpful for clients to understand what they're investing in, sort of. And they're helpful for teams designing and refining their investment process. So there isn't a problem here, except that since about 1995, we've been in a high growth period. One result of this context is that during this time period, most growth strategies have outperformed value and valuation metrics we were all taught to rely on became less reliable indicators of future enterprise value. We're not here to debate whether growth is better than value or value better than growth or if these boxes are even relevant. We are noticing that these categories can creep into how we identify or over-identify with our strategies. I'm going to oversimplify it here, but growth investors have been told for decades now that they're paying extremely high valuations and in effect are being reckless. And value investors have been held up as beacons of discipline. There are truths in these statements and there are assumptions in these statements. Let's dig in. Okay, so Bryn, today, I'm actually gonna start us off today, a little bit of change of pace. And the, the topic is growth and value. And this ongoing drama, debate, saga of growth and value and will growth keep winning and those things. So um, here's like four points and then we can drop down into each. Um, When I first think of growth and value, I think of change. Mm. And I think of what is the level of disequilibrium in a system and a business environment. The more disequilibrium, the more growth is going in quotes, growth or change is really the critical variable. The less disequilibrium, maybe value is the critical variable. Since 1994, we've had incredible disequilibrium in the business market, and that's been fun for some and terrible for others. Point two is value folks are viewed more as disciplined. And we wrote a piece called Jello's uh, Pillars of, of Jello a couple weeks ago that gets at the orientation that maybe value isn't as disciplined as it seems on the surface, but more so important is that growth investors over the last 25 years have implicitly or explicitly been accused of being reckless. And of I think that, high valuations and Yeah, just it doesn't make any sense. We'll come back to that. This is a really key point. And from that space, I could imagine a lot of growth investors almost being guilted into overlaying certain methods that don't actually serve serve well. Uh, The third part is um, one of the disequilibriums is culture. We're in a massive shift of organizational structure and have been over the last 60 years, which I don't think is fully appreciated. Mm -hmm. Come back to that. And then the fourth point is in your business, you interface or we all interface with clients and we interface with consultants who want us to stay in a box. And it's important to stay in the box. 
while being in the box doesn't mean you throw up your hands, but debating the box is not very valuable in, mm -hmm. in most instances. It reduces your TAM. But what you can do is show your assumptions and demonstrate your discipline as a growth investor to overcome those biases. So at least you're viewed as like an incredibly disciplined, thoughtful growth firm. Uh, so those are the four points. And I guess William Sharp plays a big role in this whole thing that we've bought into his Nobel Prize, so to speak, which was conceptual and furthering, but the practical impact in our industry, I think has been somewhat devastating. Uh, that's a strong word. So Pip, you have this great story about your um, Eldon Mayer. And I want to bring in this story because I think it merges these two worlds really well because he went to go see oh, a very esteemed guru of the investment world, Benjamin Graham. Can you give us this story and, and just, you know, bridge it to how these worlds of value and growth can live together in, in, uh, in our process? Sure. In between years at business school, I had an internship at a change firm and not a growth or a value, but change firm. And mm -hmm. it was led by and created by a gentleman named Eldon Mayer. Eldon in the late 60s with this change philosophy that he really pioneered went to Benjamin Graham because I think he wanted, so the story goes that he wanted validation and like the blessing of Benjamin Graham, who he had access to. Um, and so they spent an afternoon together. And at the end, Benjamin Graham, again, so the story goes, Benjamin Graham blessed Eldon's methodology. What he really said is that in his book value orientation, that was a heuristic for understanding the value of a company. Sometimes mm -hmm. in a period of equilibrium, those numbers were pretty close together. But if Eldon understood change better than others, he could in, input or infuse uh, an understanding of how the value of the assets was effectively changing. It sort of was, well, Benjamin Graham wasn't so tied to book value. It was a best representation of something, but in a state of change, if, if Eldon could understand that, absolutely, that made total sense to Benjamin Graham. So we were long told that story. And what that led to us to, believe, uh, to work on was finding patterns and understanding change. Eldon, to his credit, I remember him calling me out like I was a pretty junior person. I was invited to the, um, the grown-ups table for an offsite, but I was clearly the junior person. And the day before I had put out this piece on everyone's desk, you know, about general instruments. And Eldon said, Pip, I hope you don't really think that you know that next year they're going to earn a dollar sixty-eight. And I didn't. I had already like I was just being. I guess thorough, which I, you know, probably not a good thing always, but I was totally called out in front of the meeting. And, and Bryn, I do remember the number was 168 because it was really traumatic in front of all these people. <laughs> you don't really believe that. And I was like, no, Eldon, I don't believe that stuff. And so then I started rounding things and not getting so precise. It was really helpful. So he didn't think we could be precise. What he did think is we could understand patterns of change and direction and the degrees of magnitude. And if we understood that better than, than most everyone else, it would be a huge advantage as others would be catching up to the new reality. Right. And what we're taught in the CFA um, and maybe some business school 
is can be a reliance on you mentioned William Sharp, the Sharp ratio, price to book, peg, um, even earnings ratios. And in fact, if those, if we're not really examining what might be under those numbers and what degree of disequilibrium they might represent or not represent, then that's actually the the more reckless thing. We may fool ourselves into thinking we're being disciplined. Oh. Yeah, well, just to be clear, you finished the CFA. They didn't let me finish it. I failed uh, the third part and I decided never to go back, maybe because I just couldn't cope with failure. That's probably really the reason. But when I think about the bringing in too much science Mm. or a false science, I think that is what inadvertently happened with William Sharp. So the, the piece that we wrote a few weeks ago called Pillars of Jello Here's where it came from. Growth people have been sort of told that they're reckless. Mm. How could you pay that for salesforce.com? You know, that type of orientation. And the value people are disciplined. Underneath that discipline, and this is not to cast stones at the value people. It's really to hit a little bit of, um, what do you call that? Uh, Inferiority complex that growth investors might have towards discipline. So inside the, the, in quotes, discipline of value investing, you have two massive assumptions. Well, first start, 90% of value methodologies get tied mathematically to DCF. That's probably something not everyone knows, but it's it's a heuristic towards DCF or it is DCF. Mm -hmm. So that's 90%. There's a couple of exceptions and those aren't very much better like peg ratios, which don't have any tie. So inside of that DCF, there's two pillars of jello. One is beta. Beta's explanatory power, as most people know uh, in, in our world, is ridiculously low. Mm. If Steve Crandall or Maria Sousa, who are true scientists, understood the low explanatory power of beta and its pillar of jello, they would think we're even more reckless than they probably do. That's one pillar of jello. The other pillar of jello is the sensitivity, mm-hmm. which we all kind of understand because we've seen sell side analysts and maybe a few of us have done it at times, play with the whack, and all of a sudden, like the target price goes up. So that's not a discipline that is based on discipline. Growth investors are viewed to be reckless. And they, I think a lot of growth investors get an inferiority complex, so they're not actually sure if they are being reckless or they're worried about their being reckless or why am I, because they've been kind of implicitly told every day that, that they're somehow being reckless. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go into the, um, some practical ideas for how to handle that. But first, what's the cultural disequilibrium that you're talking about with organizational structure? Yeah, there's maybe two parts of disequilibrium conversation. One is cultural. So um, Greg Parsons, one of our friends, put this really succinctly. He said, we've gone, we're now entering the fourth form of management organization mm-hmm. in the last 60 years or maybe more. And he starts to talk about, you know, 60s and 70s was dominated by hierarchy. The 80s and 90s, we were playing with matrix management. Then he goes in the 2000s, it was like a free-for-all, just connect people and great insights and innovation will happen, which Greg doesn't think it's like that laissez-faire. And now we're getting into a living mode. 
like how do we live our lives in context of structure and organization? So just imagine like IBM the other day, it's so steeped in three generations ago of management structure that it's so post-zeitgeist, anti-zeitgeist, not just post-zeitgeist, it's anti-zeitgeist. The ability for that organization or others caught in an anti-zeitgeist culture or an anti-zeitgeist management structure, and those two tend to go together often, to then get it right and fix things mm. is really hard to believe. And then, so that's one cultural disequilibrium that I think a lot of people that wind up in value traps can't, can't see or don't just simply recognize like, oh, this is going to be really hard culturally for them to fix their problems. Right. The second set of disequilibriums are really, I'd say since the internet in 1994, but you could also throw computers and cell phones. And then, you know, 10 years later, it was Facebook and um, smartphones and all these different, how that's changed our lives, I think created a massive disequilibrium starting in 1994. If you add geopolitics to it, it makes it even more crazy because the fall of the Berlin Wall was 1989. China was not a true first generation, first world superpower until about 10, 12 years ago, uh, the Beijing Olympics. So we had huge disequilibriums. And when you have a disequilibrium, the fixed nature of certainty around evaluation approach gets undermined. So in order for evaluation approach like William Sharp's to, to have, have power, you would like nothing to really be changing. You don't want those assets that Eldon and Benjamin Graham talked about. You don't want their value changing. You don't want their utility changing. You don't want a cultural reorganization in terms of structures of management. Like you don't want that stuff. You want things to be pretty much solid, like a, uh, a US treasury bond. We could sort of count on that because the underlying assumption is the US government will pay its bills always. So now we have this massive disequilibrium where change is more important to understand than let's say value. And there's huge winners, huge losers. And the discipline of value actually becomes a false beacon, so to speak. The focus on change and understanding the change really well grows in value tremendously. So look over the past 25 years, I think this growth value discussion has been just radically lopsided and not surprisingly given the disequilibrium in, in the economies and businesses and how business is even conducted. So let's move to the fourth point about the practical nature of, of handling this. And uh, something that comes up a lot with growth investors is paying high valuation. What's someone to do? We've talked about the competition for capital and how to handle that, but um, say more. And, and especially in terms of how, um, how we can open up this conversation with clients and consultants uh, and maybe mm. you know show your work a bit in order to um, describe processes that, that are healthy and do take this into account. Yeah, I was, I was with the, one of our friends yesterday who was describing uh, the mentor at, at, that he learned from in their organization. It reminded me of Eldon, that Eldon had, uh, what's that phrase, did not suffer fools gladly. Yeah. And he just refused to get into a box. Hmm. And that was bad for business. <laughs> And the marketers did not want to take Eldon out on the road, so to speak, like, because you never knew what he would say. But usually it was something that would like 
say there shouldn't be these boxes. But the boxes have grown because our industry's grown and that's what happens. So I don't want to push back on the boxes unless you want a really small TAM, um, which isn't usually what most businesses are set up for. So I don't want to push back on the boxes. What I do want to do inside of the growth, I want to use the bias to our advantage. How in a meeting, how steadily do we keep showing our work to show our discipline, to show our rigor without pushing back on the box framework so that at least you're considered like, oh my gosh, they're such a disciplined growth investor, as if that's an oxymoron or something, that you get that reputation. And that I think one of the real values is consultants love, love the people they examine mm-hmm. who actually make them better at their own job. The mm. So if you are able to make a consultant better. So back to show your work, we have a lot of growth investor friends who are extremely disciplined, extremely process-oriented, and I'd like to think that we were too. So I think about, among other things, Bryn, the, the game inside of the game almost, the competition inside the competition for capital. So about uh, 12 years ago, I came to a, fun, a conclusion that this crazy valuation thing was part of the system of voting, so to speak. And then I needed to understand how that worked, what made it tick. And we committed that 35% of our portfolio would always be in things that were not defendable by William Sharp's DCF orientation. They were just clearly, you couldn't, you could stretch all day, but you really couldn't even get there. Mm-hmm. And that is the nature of change. And mm-hmm. that is the nature of markets. And we could call those manias, but if a mania lasts for 25 years, I'm not sure if it's a mania or just a new normal. So we had set up a competition for capital. It's just, just one example, a competition for capital and you know, said 35% of the portfolio is there. Then we could distinguish between things that would get there and things that wouldn't. And mm-hmm. our process, we wrote a piece about seven years ago called um, The Other Room Stocks, which we renamed how to deal with ridiculous valuations, ridiculous in quotes. And that actually, the first benefit of that is we found more shorts in 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. And then we could say, okay, if, the, if 35% is going to be in these types of unsubstantiated or unsupportable or undefendable DCFs, what does that competition look like? And so we came up with a seven-part model, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there are ways to show the work, to show the discipline, so that inside of that box, there's not a fight. So we have two pieces on this topic. One's called Pillars of Jello, which goes into DCFs and some of the maybe problematic assumptions embedded in them, and growth versus value. Just ping us and we'll send them on over. And before we go, you know, I guess the growth versus value distinction could be seen as a false choice. And the great thing about a false choice is that when it's revealed as such, we can go from either or binary answers to a huge world of possibilities. So I hope this brings up some helpful questions for you to uncover how you've been thinking about valuation, process, and growth. Thanks for listening.